Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode 10 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is TJ Usian. TJ, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. How's uh, Thank you for coming on. How's your day going? My day is going pretty well. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty day out here in Georgia, and and uh, I'm I'm on a podcast. Cool. Well, I'm happy to have you. Um, so uh, maybe just start out by saying, you know, how people might be familiar with you. Um, most likely, uh, especially in the last couple of years, I've done a few uh, talks that have been recorded and put on the internet. But yeah, I tend to speak a, a good number of conferences. I teach iOS. Uh, now I'm currently teaching at Iron Yard. And um, just in general, I'm a, I'm a personality online, I guess. I do tweet a lot, but sort of in fits and starts. That makes sense. That's good. Sorry, I just realized that that makes sense is like my catchphrase for the show. I need to stop saying that after every time somebody stops speaking. Uh, longtime listeners of the show will recognize my signature catchphrase. Um, so that's cool. So uh, what have you been speaking about at, uh, at conferences? Recently, I've been speaking about diversity and the language around that and language in general. Uh, more often, I tend to speak about math and types and music and uh, a good number of things that are very interesting to me. And I think very interesting in general, but not necessarily practical in the straightforward way that a lot of other conference talks are. I see. So, um, well, that's, that is interesting though, because I know that you, you have a uh, music background, right? You went to school for music. Correct. So, uh, how does that, so what was your, uh, it, what was your sort of uh, lead into getting into development then? Was it through music? Yes. Uh, so originally, I mean, if, if we want to be complete and, and whatnot, yes, I, I did program at some point in high school. I took a class. I didn't do terribly, but I didn't do very well. Um, well, I, I didn't do exceptionally, I should say. Um, and there was no great passion for programming then. So I, I sort of let that be. And then I purchased a mono, uh, which is just a grid of buttons and lights. And there was a script that someone else had released for Ableton live written in Python that mm -hmm. I downloaded and, uh, wanted to extend. So I spent some time trying to, trying to figure out what the script did and I was successful. I extended it. I released it back into the community because that was the only reason that I actually had any chance at all of doing it. Uh, so when I released it, a few people made some requests for features. Uh, and when I suggested that they maybe do a similar thing to what I did, they pointed out that I had already done what I did and I knew how the script worked. So why couldn't I do it for them? And, um, after around six months to may maybe a year of that, um, I realized that I hadn't really stopped. Um, mm -hmm. And all of this was in an environment that wasn't very friendly. Um, it, end users were not supposed to script, uh, to use these scripts. So debugging it was a nightmare. 
uh, sort of making it all work was pretty terrible. And around the time that I decided that I was going to um, sort of become a little bit more serious about it, they released Max for Live, or when I say they, Ableton and Cycling 74, who are now one entity, which is interesting all by itself, um, released Max for Live. And um, so I decided to get even more serious. And I already had a copy of uh, Max MSP. So mm-hmm. I decided to you know, just, just go as, as far as I could in that direction. And that led to JavaScript. And around that time, I decided to go back to school for music, uh, which meant leaving my job at Apple Retail. Um, and for some reason, I decided that since I was going to leave Apple Retail and they had told us that we couldn't make apps while we worked at Apple Retail, that I definitely wanted to make apps or at least know how to make apps like immediately after I left, um, kind of just as a, you can't tell me what to do kind of, kind of thing. Um, and you know, I, I read some books. I watched CS50.net. I took a weekend little boot camp for programming on iOS. And then I waited for an idea. Well, that's, that's interesting. So let's back up a little bit. So uh, maybe we could, uh, I, I know this is going to seem really basic to you, but maybe we could back up and just tell people. Uh, so you had this MIDI controller, right? The, the, the button with the lights and everything, right? Um, I'm going to be pedantic. I apologize. No, I just want to make, <laughs> I just want to make sure because um, you and I are, you know, familiar with like what Ableton is and stuff. But maybe we could back up and just uh, make sure that the audience knows uh, what those apps you were talking about are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be pedantic and say it is an OSC controller, uh, open, uh, you know, open sound control. Although I think maybe they've tried to change that name so it's not specific to sound anymore. Um, it it basically plugs in via USB and it doesn't send MIDI. It sends you know a different serial spec uh, that has much more fidelity, but also much less uh, structure than MIDI. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, and the controller that I have is very literally uh, a grid of buttons and lights. All that it does when you press a button is send a message that a button was pressed. And then whatever software you're connected to uh, can send a message to the monome saying, turn this light on or off. So usually what people think of when they first see the monome is, is a uh, drum machine where you press a button. It's, you know, it is now lit up. And then when, when you start playing, it'll play a note corresponding to that. But as many users of the monome will attest or can attest to, it can be kind of anything. I mean, one of my favorite apps for the mono was a, like a QWERTY keyboard, uh, uh-huh. uh-huh. which is fairly ridiculous because there's no labels on any of these buttons. It is a square of eight by eight. Uh, well, the original ones were and typing on it wasn't that bad, but it was fairly hilarious uh, to watch people watch me type on it mm-hmm. uh, because there's, there's no indication of what letters you have at all. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at this right now and it's exactly what you said. It's a, uh, it's, so it's not a MIDI controller. Like you said, it's a, uh, it, it is a 
the other thing that you said, an OSC, but it, it looks like a drum machine, right? So it's just a grid of, it's just literally a grid of buttons that light up. Yep. Yep. And then, so maybe go into what, uh, you know, I, I wanted to say like, what, what is Ableton <laughs> and <laughs> what are those things? Cause some of our listeners may not be familiar with recording yeah. software. All right. Well, Ableton Live is a uh, DAW digital audio workstation, um, which is sort of a fancy way of saying you can record music, you can arrange music with it. Um, it can host other pieces of software that will synthesize uh, music or you know sounds. It it basically is in and of itself uh, all of the software that you need to make a fairly robust recording of some music and, you know, do everything that you want, right? You can master it. Well, people argue about that part, but you can, um, you can, you can record, arrange, edit, uh, and, and like even just sort of generate from no sounds at all, um, whatever music you want. Yeah. That, that sounds like a pretty, a pretty good description. Um, okay. So you were, uh, so you were doing, all of these, you were doing some scripting and other things, and then eventually you uh, you left and uh, you you were working at the Apple Store, and eventually you left the Apple Store uh, to go work to go back to school, and you decided you were going to make your own iOS apps because they wouldn't let you do that when you were working at the Apple Store. Yeah, and, and it, it wasn't even they wouldn't let us; they just gently reminded us that we couldn't do such a thing, which. Mm-hmm. For some reason, you know, I, I just wanted to be contrary, um, I guess. <laughs> nice. So what was the first app that you made? Uh, my first app was Inner Ear. It's an ear training app. Um, it's not on the store currently. I have recently made it build again. Um, so it, the whole structure of the first version of my app was that you had these exercises where you'd say like do re mi fa sol la ti do um, and you could arrange those syllables however you wanted um, and you would put in this list of syllables so that you could uh, you know know what you were going to practice and as you swiped through it wouldn't play any sound but then if you tapped it would play the note that you were supposed to sing. And the Mm -hmm. whole idea was that you would always start on the, you know, whatever note you were going to begin the song on or begin the exercise on, you would probably play that. Uh, Usually it was do maybe, but Mm -hmm. it didn't have to be. Uh, And then you would only use the app to play sounds when you were unsure if you sang the correct note or if you were still in key or whatever. Uh, and the whole reason for this was these exercises were things that they'll, that people will tell you to practice at a piano. People will say, you know, sit next to a piano and practice this. Or if you, you know, have some other instrument that you're really familiar with, use that. And, uh, if, if you don't have an instrument, right, if you're not a guitar player or this or that player, right, like just, just use a piano because that's the easiest thing to use for music theory related uh, exercises. Or yeah, for doing interval training, right? Because all the notes are just there. You don't really have to know how to play it to do that. Which is kind of a lie. Uh, <laughs> it's And that's that's the thing that bothers me most about that, uh, that instruction. And I've talked about this before, and I guess I'll just keep talking about it uh, forever, because uh, 
a piano is great in the key of C. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's perfect in the key of C. But then if you are uh, not super familiar with a piano and you're practicing something in the key of F sharp or whatever, uh, and then you're like, okay, well, I, I was supposed to sing C in the key of F sharp. Uh, usually you're in the middle of the exercise, you sing the note, and then you try to figure out, oh, well, where on the piano is fee? What should I be hitting? And then you hit that note. And by the time you found fee in F sharp, you don't really remember what note you sang and whether or not it was actually the same pitch that you just heard when you hit the key on the piano. Um, so there's just that, that delay that really breaks down what the piano was supposed to reinforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, the whole point of my app was that you wouldn't be thinking about a piano. You wouldn't be thinking about uh, transposition or anything like that. You would just say, this is the key I'm in. And as you swiped through, you would see the syllable that you were supposed to sing and you could hear it immediately just by tapping it. Uh, The downside is that you don't reinforce any of that on a piano, which I I do realize that that's a trade-off, but that's not what you're practicing there. Mm Mm-hmm. So that, that makes sense. So this was your first app, and then you're saying that you have recently got that building again, so you're going to re-release that so people can train their intervals once again. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I first moved down here to Georgia, um, I, I sort of let it lapse because I was working on other things, and it gave birth to a music theory library that I you know poured all of my extra time into, and that library outpaced the app so that when I finally thought about bringing it back into the app, it was so different that I I actually um, I'm having a bit of difficulty updating the app itself, especially now that the library is in Swift, but the app is in objective C. Oh no. (laughs) It's um, it, I mean, there are worse scenarios to be in, but, um, but that, that's a tricky one to navigate. Um, but for a little while, especially because a lot of the Git repositories that I had um, set up had moved or been renamed or whatever, uh, I couldn't even get it to build reliably. Uh, mm-hmm. But now I can. And hopefully uh, very soon I'll actually re-release it and hopefully improve upon it. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh so I just want to give a quick explanation for our listeners who may not have gotten all of what we were just, so we just threw around a lot of terms. Uh, you know, so uh, everybody's probably familiar with like, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, right? And so what this, so when we talk about interval training, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, being able to hear the differences between uh, those, those are the notes in a scale, Right. And we're talking about with interval train being able to hear or sing or whatever the you know the jumps there, so the interval between uh, do and you know do and me or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the example that I, I tend to give is like the song Maria from West Side Story is do fi so do fi so la fi so la fi so uh, so fi mi re do re, um, and. You know, now I've sung that example a good amount of time. So, you know, it's like, if this is do, like, do, now watch me mess it all up. Do, do, fi, do, do, fi, so, do, fi, so, la, fi, so, la, fi, so, 
Don't. Yeah. Well, the idea, though, is yeah. just that we, I, I just want to give the basic idea, though, that we're talking about interval training, that those are literally intervals in that major scale, you know, with music, right? Or it could be in a different scale, I guess, too. But um, that, that, that was the idea of that app. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, what I was trying to um, may or may not have properly uh, given an example of is basically when you say a specific syllable, there is supposed to be a certain sound that you associate with that. Um, yes. Regardless of scale, almost, it, it's really associated with the key. Um, you know, given a doe, just mm -hmm. a, a resting, you know, the note of rest, everything else should be relative to that unless you're, you know, you have fancy pitch. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what the app was meant to help you develop. That makes that makes sense, and so you were talking about this, uh, you know, how you wrote this um, this library, uh, you know, that kind of spun off of the app for, uh, you know, for a music theory library. What does a music theory library does do, and how's that been useful in uh, other projects? Um, it it um, it has basic building blocks for representing music theory ideas. So, you know, everything that we were just talking about, scales, chords, notes, um, you know, individual pitches, pitch classes, all of those things are sort of wrapped up in, in some code where if I decide that I want to write an app that works with pitch or works with scales, uh, I have already written so much logic that all works together that I usually don't have to worry about um, anything in that regard, right? I can mm -hmm. just, you know, I can say, oh, well, I want to show a scale. Okay, I'm going to show a scale. And so long as it works with this library, you know, with the scale object, I know that if I later on want to pull a chord out of that scale or transpose that scale or play that scale back, that all of that machinery works and, and works in a way that makes sense, um, not just in the realm of, you know, not just in relation to a scale. So that so that's interesting. Uh, so it's a library, yeah. It's a library for just being able to represent all of these, you know, musical things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it it ended up. I took a very long detour uh, parsing uh, chord names, but I can also parse, you know, anything representing any of those ideas, right? So if you have the name of a scale, if you have the name of a chord, if you have the name of a pitch. Uh, all of those things. So it, it really tries to be a catch-all for um, basically you're interested in music and you're writing Swift. This should cover most things that you want to do on a, on any given day. That's pretty neat. Um, so we'll definitely have a link for that in the show notes. Uh, so the first app you did was this. Um, so we'll back up a little bit. The first app you did was this interval training app. And then... Uh, at some point that has led you to teaching and speaking at conferences and stuff. Um, and in the middle, you were going to school. So the thing that I'm getting from this conversation is that you have a much, a much stronger background in the math of, uh, of all this music stuff than I do by far. Um, where did that come from? Is that all, I mean, is that, did you, is that something you learned in school or is that something you kind of like brought with you? Do you know what I mean? Like, 
you, uh, you, you talk about, uh, you know, these sort of mathematical kinds of things and you're very comfortable with it. Uh, so, so where, where did that sort of passion come from? Um, most of it is, I guess, just because I, I very much am interested in music and math, uh, mm-hmm. and, the, and programming is a nice way for me to try to tie that all together. Um, I haven't really released the, the library, um, to, to the public yet, but that that's always been sort of a long-term goal, mostly because there isn't a library or a good set of representations that actually tie all of these things together in a way. Um, the closest text that I can uh, think of is Musimathics by Gareth Loy, uh, mm-hmm. which is a great you know, two-volume uh, little, I don't know if it's a series with two volumes, but two books that are uh, very, very good. Uh, and they they go into some of that. I like uh, the <laughs> I like my library a little bit better. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is mostly because I started writing that library before I knew about the book, um, and so I've explored a lot. Um, but uh, you see, Gareth Loy also I really should have uh, mentioned Paul Hudak uh, maybe first because I think I encountered that book first. Um, but again, a little bit after I had begun my library, but Haskell School of Music and Haskell uh-huh. School of Expression. Um, Haskell School of Music is the the later one. Uh, Paul Hudak recently passed away. I guess it's not that recent, but recently passed away. And um, he he has a library called Uterpia in Haskell that is uh, that that does much of the same work that I do, uh, which is trying to represent all of these ideas in a way that, that holds together so that you can, um, you know, compose and then manipulate those compositions using mathematical structures and things like that. So most of my familiarity and comfort, uh, really just comes from having spent, I guess, close to eight years, like working on this library and then looking at all of the work that I could, uh, manage to take in from other people working on this. Um, and just, just being comfortable with the idea that I'm not going to understand something uh, at first or immediately, or, you know, maybe even completely. Uh, but whatever I can get out of it is, is enough. So, uh, so I guess what I meant to ask then is you, you, you weren't born this way. <laughs> you, um, you, 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 you've come to this over time. You've, you've, it's a, it's a skill you've learned through, uh, you know, training and through making things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, when I went back to school, I should have probably focused more on performance and, and practice, uh, and, you know, sort of actually making musics. Um, but I, I stepped away from that a little bit and really stepped into the theory aspect of it and harmony. Uh, I had a, a teacher who I, I really took to and, and just, you know, paid great attention to, to sort of everything that he was saying. And I really had an understanding of harmony uh, from a theoretical standpoint that I, I wanted to translate into programming because I didn't see it there. Uh, mm-hmm. And ever since I have really spent a lot of time just, just trying to make that real so that when someone who cares a lot about music and doesn't know about programming sits down and wants to play a major scale. Hopefully eventually all they'll do is say, you know, play a C major scale, 
in some way in you know Swift or whatever language it is that that is both natural in terms of the programming language and natural to the uh, you know budding software developer, uh, uh-huh. and and it'll just work because if you've ever had to play a like a major scale or a minor scale or whatever it's not simple enough that you can tell someone to just you know figure it out in any natural way yeah that no that absolutely um so 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 you did you know the inner ear app and uh you know we're talking about all of the you know where the learning for that came from and your uh you know your your framework for um, doing uh, music theory, which you should absolutely release, by the way, because that sounds really cool. Um, and uh, so, so maybe you've made some other music apps. So maybe talk about some highlights of those. Yeah. So when I was leaving, uh, finishing Berkeley, I should say, when I was finishing uh, my time at Berkeley, I worked on Partial, which is a an additive synthesis uh, audio unit. And I don't know if that still builds, but it definitely won't soon since audio units are like version two audio units are not long for this world. Uh-huh. Um, and audio units are a, a, a format that Apple maintains and created, uh, which allow you to create sound effects or mm, not, not in the way. So audio effects that I, should, you know, so if I wanted my voice to sound like uh a robot or whatever, I could make an effect and I could make it as an audio unit. I could also make an instrument audio unit so -hmm. that I could use a MIDI controller and, you know, sort of make sounds and make it sound like a guitar or piano or whatever I wanted. Um, so I made one of those, uh, with the help of, uh, a colleague in Boston. Um, and that, um, well, mentor, I should say, um, and that, that went pretty well. I I never really released it because, that was really just a, a a very fun experiment, but I, I don't write C++ well enough that I felt like it was ever performant. You know, mm-hmm. you know I, I could do a couple notes without any kind of issue, but you know, when, it, when things got really fancy, it, it sort of fell down a little bit. Uh, and after that, um, I released Cordal Text, which is my most recent app. I released it last year in the beginning of last year, and I've given it a couple decent updates, so I'm not feeling bad about that. And what that does is um, you can type in chord information uh, kind of however you'd like, hopefully. Uh, if you think of a way that you would like to type in chord information that I don't support, feel free to email me. Um, but you can type in the name, so you can say uh, C major 7. Uh, you can type in just major seven. You can type in, you know, seven flat nine, flat 13. Um, you can type in Roman numeral two in G major or, you know, whatever. Like you can do kind of whatever you want so long as it actually describes a chord in some way. Mm-hmm. And then I will show you uh, a little bit in the UI to say I recognize the chord or more than one chord. Um, here, here's the information about that chord. Uh, here's that chord played on a piano, or like, or blocked out on a piano, I should say. And then you can play it 
you, as just a, a chord, just hit all the notes at once. You can arpeggiate it up. You can arpeggiate it down. You can arpeggiate it up and down. Uh-huh. That's, that's actually... So it seems like that app you just described would be uh, not maybe not easy to write, but significantly easier if you'd already written a music theory library to base it off of. Oh, are you kidding? That, that, uh, that, that app, when I decided to write it, and then when I finally got it all working together, I was like, hey, there's not that much, you know, not that many lines of code in this app. This is wonderful. And then I thought about it for a moment and realized that, yes, uh, the app is fairly compact if you're counting lines of code literally just in the project. But uh, I have written thousands of lines of code for this music yeah. theory library. <laughs> That's that's really cool. So you, uh, yeah. So that's that that's an interesting topic, I think, in itself. Though it's just you know having that code that you can then apply to different. Uh, you know, it came out of this one app, and then you expanded it over time, and now you're able to make other things much more easily because of that. And I think that that's a really uh, that that's something that I think about doing. I guess you know having like a framework of you know stuff I can use in multiple projects, but that's. Uh, that's pretty cool that you've actually been able to apply that to different things you've worked on. Yeah, I, w- I was really excited about that idea when I first started uh, getting serious about programming. Um, you know, I even I even gave some talks about it. Uh, I, I envy Python's uh, all, batteries included slogan because they seem to actually achieve it. Mm-hmm. Where you know you can say I have an interest in this. Is there a library for it? And then there probably is, and it's probably actually good enough that you don't need to know Python immediately uh, or completely to, to extract some benefit or, you know, utility from it. Yeah. I think that there's seemingly to me in the, you know, in the Python development that I've done, it seems like there's literally a library for everything in Python. It's yeah. very easy to, uh, like you said, find good code that probably does most of what you need. Yeah. Even define gravity. <laughs> um. Absolutely. Uh, so, you um, so so you made all these apps, and then you've been speaking uh, at uh, you know you've been speaking at different conferences. Actually, I think the first time that we met was at a conference. Uh, we met at uh, 360 MacDev, uh, which I think is a conference that maybe only happened once uh, in in Denver, but it, like five years ago. But it, it was a fun one. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and you, you know, you've been speaking at all these other ones. I saw you did. Uh, you spoke at Layers last year. Um, do, were you at any of the? Uh, did you do any speaking this year at any of the things around WWDC? I did CocoConf next door. Uh, apparently, maybe the last CocoConf because now they're doing uh, Swift by Northwest. So, oh, I saw that. Yeah. So, what what did you speak at at uh, at, at that one? I spoke about parsers and um, building a little. Not exactly a theorem prover, but like a, a type checking system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So may, maybe explain what 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 maybe explain what uh you know what what that means. <laughs> the the former or the latter. Uh, I'll start with parsers. Okay. Um, so parsing, um, yeah, parsing as a general term is is something that we always do when we hear people speak or when we even just when we hear people or, or see people move or whatever it you know, sort of extracting meaning out of a sequence of elements right so if someone makes a, a series of hand gestures we parse meaning from that if someone makes a series of sounds we parse meaning from that 
but usually when we're talking about computer science, when people say, you know, I'm writing a parser or I'm, I'm trying to parse something, they're usually parsing from a, uh, a like a ordered list, an ordered sequence of, of characters, right? What we think of as like sentences, words, you know, stories, text mm-hmm. files. Yes. Um, so there are a, a fun amount, or a crazy number of ways that you can actually uh, write a parser and attack this problem of how do I recognize that if this letter comes after this letter, that it's a, a chicken, you know, that it represents a chicken or this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are quite a few parsers uh, and, and parsing strategies that, that are pretty well established. Um, but when I started writing my music theory library, and then I started trying to parse things, uh, the, my very first attempt was completely naive and just based on um, a class in foundation, which is uh, the library from Apple just called NS scanner. So what I did mm-hmm. is I just, I just mimicked that. I, I figured out the pattern and I decided that that was going to be how I wrote my parsers and I got it working, but I realized very quickly that that was poorly written on my part. Um, so I tried to learn a little bit about parsing and I rewrote it. And then just after that rewrite, I started in on another rewrite and Swift was released. Um, and Swift really opened up the doors for a few different techniques and um and ideas. So Swift has just enough uh, functional programming influences that I could look at a paper written uh, with Haskell examples and then, you know, sort of squint and think real hard and then translate it into Swift code. And I did that with a, uh, with the idea of parser combinators, which, you know, I, I have a couple talks, I think maybe one of them is recorded about uh, parser combinators, but I, I talk about it all the time. Um, and the basic idea is that you, you make a few really simple parsers that can recognize like one character and tell you if it's the character you're looking for. Uh, you make another parser that always accepts uh, whatever character you give it and then yields a specific value. Uh, and then you make another parser that ignores whatever input you give it and just always fails. And then you make some ways to combine those parsers. And very quickly, you can recognize almost anything that you want and, mm-hmm. you know, generate objects or generate, you know, instances of things from that, um, that parsed input. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all that that's very interesting. Uh, so Swift sort of, uh, so, so back up a little bit. So, so with the parsers, uh, so Swift opened it up because of its, uh, you know, having the functional programming, some, you know, some functional programming things in it and, uh, a stronger type system and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, technically a lot of this was possible in objective C, but it, you wouldn't get as many guarantees. It wouldn't, uh, it, it just wouldn't feel as nice and you would end up fighting the language and the tooling a little bit more. Uh, the simplest way that I can explain it is right now in Swift, I can write uh, this parser in a way where uh, the type system, like the computer can be sure that when I have a parser for a pitch, 
that an object representing a pitch comes out. Um, and at least when I wrote this originally, that would have been much harder to do in Objective-C. That makes sense. Because Objective-C, it could actually, you could think it's something, but it could actually be anything, right? Yeah, and you had no, no guarantees from the computer, really, Yeah, uh, <laughs> that, that what you say you gave is actually what you gave. Yeah, we're in Swift. You can actually, because of its you know type system, you can actually make that correct and test it. That that makes that makes all the sense in the world. Um, so, uh, last thing I want to ask you about is uh, teaching. And so, you know, you've made all these apps, you've done all these things. How did you get into teaching, and what's that? What's that like? Yeah, I, I've actually uh, recently answered this question, um, sort of just in, in personal life. Um, I, before I taught, uh, for BNR, I taught a summer camp, you know, teaching objectives, objective C and C plus plus, um, the C plus plus part was, was not, um, my idea, but mm-hmm. I, I made it through. Um, uh, I only say that just cause I, I never will claim to be that great at C plus plus. It sounds like it's uh, not your favorite. Uh, it's not even so much not my favorite as, as I am, I'm just always aware when I look at C++ of how much there is that I just don't get. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I just, uh, don't understand it. Some of it's very, very nice, uh, especially looking at C++ 11 and C++ 14. There are a lot of places in, or a lot of, there's, there are a lot of features that have been added, uh, that make it a language that I would like to know possibly. Um, but learning a new language, especially one as particular as C plus plus to me is something that I don't do lightly, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, yeah. So whenever I I make a a face or a sound about C plus plus, it's not necessarily because it's, uh, as dangerous of a language as it is in terms of juggling all the knives, but it's just, I know that there are people who actually know C plus plus, uh, to a degree to be able to say that they know it. And I'm not one of those yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I taught there and uh, I, before that, before I even, you know, went back to school, uh, you know, when I was at the Apple retail stores, I did the one-on-one training. And then before that I you know taught after school um, and just, just in general, I, I have always been, okay with teaching slash excited about teaching. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, at, at first it was basically when people, when someone would ask me to teach somewhere or, you know, explain this thing, I'd be like, okay, sure. Why not? Uh, and that quickly became like, I enjoy this. I, I would prefer to do this than many other things. Uh, yeah. So would you say that most of your time now is kind of, you know, spent with the te- you know, doing teaching? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, teach full time and then work on my own software just, you know, kind of for fun. Uh Um, And that's largely by design. I know that my music theory apps, my ear training apps, you know, all of those things are unlikely to, to, to make me rich. Um, Especially when I charge on the app store, Um, you know, very few people hear, Oh yeah, you charge, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. Oh, okay. You know, I'll, I'll just, I'll throw that money down. The app store is really cutthroat in that way. If your app Absolutely. is not free or $1, most people will just, just kind of keep it moving. Um, but that's okay 
because I teach for a living and then do this just because this software should exist in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, when, when you're doing teaching, what do you, uh, you know, so maybe we have some new people listening. What, what do you, what do you find is the, uh, how, how do you introduce people to this who, who maybe don't have a background in, uh, you know, already? Yeah. So that, that, um, that is a question that I'm still working on the answer to. And sometimes I do it well, Sometimes I don't do it so well. Um, I try to first start with just solving very, very small problems. Um, yeah. And the smallest kind of most straightforward problems that I can think of tend to be math. When you, know, you think of word problems uh, and, um, and just, just basic arithmetic problems, usually people have enough of a hold on that and it's close enough to the model that you actually use in computers and computation that uh-huh. you can start there, especially when you start to get into the idea of functions. And you know, regardless of how comfortable people are with it, most people that I've met, you know, most adult people that I met had algebra at some point and remember yes. having functions explained to them. And they weren't that uncomfortable with the idea so much as manipulating the idea and doing fancy things. So usually everyone remembers F of X. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I start, right? You know, you have variables and they're little placeholders and most people can get a hold of that pretty quickly. Uh, The idea that X, uh, when I say X equals three later on, when I see an X, I can just substitute a three in, um, which is, aided wonderfully by constants in Swift. Um, you know, variables actually make that really hard because you say, oh, well, it's three this first time, but then I added one to it. So now X is four and then I subtracted and, you know, and that can get annoying to keep track of. But um, usually that's fine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's once you start to get that combined with functions and their idea of scope and maybe you have a variable with a name that they've seen somewhere else or, you know, objects and things like that. But that's, that's where I start usually. And then, and then what is the, uh, what would you say the comp, the most, so are you, are you teaching with Swift then mostly? Yes. Yeah. So would you say, uh, would, have you, have you also taught with Objective-C or has it all been Swift? I've taught with both. I mean, yeah. like I said, the, the summer camp that I taught at, I taught Objective-C, um, just a little bit after that, when I sort of tried to start up a little computer science club at Berkeley, uh, you know, that was Objective-C. When I started teaching, uh, when I first moved down here, that was all Objective-C until Swift was released. Mm-hmm. So um, probably three, three, four years of experience with Objective-C, mm-hmm. like teaching Objective-C, I should say, like only. So, uh, so, so I guess my the the question I was trying to lead into there is: Would you say that uh, Swift has made it uh, easier for people to get these kind of basic concepts? You know, when you're teaching them, or would you? You know, what has it? You know, has that been? Uh, has that made your life easier as a teacher, or different, or worse? Different, probably. Certain things are a lot easier. Um, like I said, constants and the ability to say let really makes uh, a placeholder. Uh, a simple thing to explain where you don't have to lie. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if, if you say that, Oh, everywhere that you see um, age, it's 13. 
with a let, that's, that can be true. Like the, com- mm-hmm. the compiler and the computer is on your side. It is making sure that that doesn't change. And you didn't have to write anything extra. Like you could obtain the same thing in C by saying like const or something like that. But, uh, you know, now I have to explain another, another keyword or whatever. Um, but with let height equal 72 or whatever, you're like, well, that's 72. Every time you see it, it's 72. Uh, and that's, that's really simple to explain at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you can get into variables and that's tends to be somewhat gentle, right? Because you say it's just like a constant, except you can change it. Uh, and that sounds so simple until, you know, you're like, well, it was three, four lines ago, but now it's five because you did, added two to it or you did this thing twice or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the goal that uh, the, the Swift team has of um, progressive disclosure, it for the most part is successful. Uh, the idea that you can start writing and not know very much about the language or you know advanced tools, and then as you go and you need those advanced tools, you can just learn about them in the moment that you need them and apply those tools. Uh, I think that that is very useful. The The difficulty that I'm having is right now, because we're a lot of these fancy tools are brand new to the whole Swift community. There are quite a lot of tools that are built using all of the fanciness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it becomes difficult to explain that you don't need generics to write an app. You don't need, uh, you know, a, any of the fanciness to write an app, you can write Swift that is uh, very close to Objective C and doesn't use anything that that has been added since Swift. And you can write a full app, a full robust app. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't suggest avoiding every new feature that Swift adds, but you can. Um, yeah, that makes sense. You know, you and, can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you can do it, and it it can work. Um, and I think as the community matures and we get more tools that, um, that take more care to also have progressive disclosure. Um, I think that will make it much easier to teach Swift than objective C. So that something you said there actually did, uh, kind of resonate with me though, which was about, you know, because a lot of these tools are new to the community, uh, you know, that, they want to use all of the new fanciness, you know, and everything. And I guess that's not a bad thing. But I, I guess the thing that that made me think about was just the idea that, you know, um, you know, Swift, uh, what is it? It's just that, um, you know, Swift maybe doesn't have as many, like, s- standard ways to do things, you know, like Objective-C did or whatever, you know? Because yeah, uh, yeah. it's such a new, it's such a new thing. We don't, you know, we don't, uh, we're, we're still experimenting, right? Yeah, it's it's funny to think about how, as a pro- programming language, Objective C is as old as I am. Yeah, you know, and, you know, a little bit older, I think, and um, that afforded us a lot of stability in terms of not just the like raw language tools itself, but like how you should write something was fairly agreed upon. There was a little mm-hmm. bit of variation between you know shops or you know some communities or whatever, but most people would say no. This is a good good way to name this variable that other developers who are used to Objective C will expect. Absolutely, uh, 
And Swift has less of that, which is a great opportunity, but it also leaves us uh, with a little bit more chaos than a lot of Objective-C developers are used to. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I always thought that, you know, uh, you know, um, Objective-C is also, you know, you can do a lot of crazy stuff with it, but the most of what you do, it's actually like a pretty small tool set, right, compared to Swift, which is a much bigger tool set. Um, and, uh, yeah, I always had the idea that, you know, two competent Objective-C programmers solving the same problem, it should come out looking kind of the same way, right? And I don't, that's maybe not yet as true in Swift because we're still figuring these things out. <laughs> definitely not. Like, uh, um, I, I am, I am definitely guilty of using the shiny new things. Like I said, when Swift was released, the first thing that I tried to do was translate Haskell ideas into Swift. Um, so there's definitely a lot of code that I write that is, um, is not, exactly what other people would first, you know, at first think of. Uh, I, I don't really like mutability for the most part and try to avoid it to a fault. I will completely admit, but mm-hmm. it makes certain problems less, uh, less likely. Like I, I realized that I now have a little bit of trouble spotting um, retain cycles in blocks because if nothing is mutable, you really don't often have a chance to create a retain cycle because self can't be given something that has a reference to self. You know, you, you just have to create another instance of it. And you know, that, mm-hmm. that, um, that's a trade off, right? Because there are certain things that are much more difficult for me to do if I issue mutability. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, I I don't have anything else uh, on on my list, but uh, <laughs> um, but this this is great. Do you have any uh, before we wrap up? Do you have any final thoughts or uh, anything? Uh, just so that I don't leave a random cliffhanger uh, in the episode, I will uh, quickly explain type checkers or the type checker thing that I was talking about, uh, which is if you have uh, if you have expressions and you know, by expressions, I mean like you know, two plus two or, you know, some bit of code where you say print this object or, you know, do something like that. Uh, each of those pieces can be assigned a type. So two plus two could be integer and integer. And then the result of actually evaluating that and figuring out what the answer is, that answer is also an integer. Uh, mm-hmm. And so almost all developers are familiar with that part of the, uh, the system where you say, yes, expressions turn into other you know, values. Okay. But figuring out whether or not um, you've given the right type to something, uh, making sure that when you evaluate one sub expression, you know, one expression that's within a larger expression that the, the correct type comes out and then gets put in the correct place uh, and it's and then making sure that everything agrees and fits together in a nice way where you say, well, you know, this thing expects an integer and then it returns a string and I'm handing that string into something that accepts a string and then returns two strings. And then, you know, uh, writing a, a bit of machinery that actually will look at all of the expressions that you've typed in somewhere and 
take in information about the types and then make sure that it all agrees. Uh, that's something that you do in a lot of uh, programming spaces, but there isn't a lot of work in Swift that I've seen. Uh, there, it might exist and I might simply have not seen it. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, I'm trying to figure out what that might look like. You know, like mm-hmm. what, what does it look like to write a program that can take another program and tell you if all the types in that uh, the program that you fed in are correct. Hmm. That sounds. Uh, yeah, that sounds. <laughs> that it, sounds like a very interesting problem. It it's um it, it's very funny because uh, not not everyone needs to think about it, and I I am completely aware about that aware of that I should say, um, but we all do need to think about it a little bit because mm-hmm. Swift has actually uh, highlighted the, the difficulty of this problem, right? Expression is too complex to be figured out in something, something time uh, is something that a lot of people complain about in Swift and just type inference in general. And how, if you go crazy with a dictionary literal or an array literal with tuples or something, um, you know, you can actually, not compile like you can take some a program that takes uh 20 seconds to compile or five seconds to compile and then crush it and make it take five minutes to compile with a pretty simple expression Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is that type checking can be difficult Um, Mm -hmm. if if you the more permissive you are with your system right and swift is actually pretty permissive with its overloading and and things like that um, if you're pretty permissive, it becomes a much bigger problem to resolve what type an expression is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that everyone needs to solve that problem, but I think a, a better general awareness of, of the difficulty would probably help everyone. And then I do hope that maybe I and you know a few other people can actually get competent enough to, to contribute and help make this problem more tractable. Absolutely. Uh, Well, I, after talking to you for, uh, you know, for almost an hour now, I would say that if anybody can, I believe it's you. (laughs) Well, thank you for the vote. (laughs) Um, So maybe uh, just say how, uh, you know, number one, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, maybe just say how people might be able to find you and the things you do. Uh, the simplest way is on Twitter, most likely, uh, Griotspeak, G-R-I-O-T-S-P-E-A-K. Uh, that's on Twitter. Um, I am also on GitHub with the same name. Uh, if you go to mod-12.com, I have a blog that I periodically, oh, I may not have added anything this year, uh, update. And uh, that's those are probably the best ways. And then catch me at North by... Uh, or Swift by Northwest. Uh, that's coming up soon. I'm also, I think, going to be at SwiftConf, which is in Germany. I am also going to attend Papers We Love conference uh, mm-hmm. in St. Louis, which is co-located with Strange Loop. There cool. Awesome. Uh, and... If you would like to, uh, if you'd like to follow me, as always, you can do that on Twitter at Colin Donnell. 
Uh, you can also follow The Run Loop at The Run Loop. And if you'd like to support the show on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. Uh, TJ, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining all of these uh, heady topics to me. And uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too.